Hi, I'm Jason Nias, along with Natalie Wires from Digital River, an e-commerce and payments company dedicated to helping brands go global and grow their revenue. But this isn't about us. This is Commerce Connect, a podcast about people who are creating some of the best e-commerce experiences of our time. Listen on to hear from e-commerce visionaries as they look back on where they started and lessons they've learned that have gotten them where they are today and what they believe is the future of online shopping. Hello and welcome to Commerce Connect. I'm Jason Ias and today my guest is Andy Peebler. He's Vice President of Commerce Strategy at Salesforce. And Andy is an e-commerce veteran guiding strategy for B2B and B2C at Salesforce, as well as go-to-market alignment and thought leadership with customers and industry stakeholders. We'll be talking about trends that Andy is paying attention to and even talk a little bit about how COVID has impacted e-commerce. Andy, welcome. Thanks, Jason. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, this is your second time on a Digital River podcast, so you're starting to earn the rewards points, so that's excellent. Wonderful. Would you do me a favor and introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Yeah. Uh, great. Thank you, Jason. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. My name is Andy Peebler, as you said. I lead uh, product go-to-market inside a commerce cloud here at Salesforce. I've been doing that for, uh, uh, been here for about two and a half years, actually, after Salesforce acquired my former company, which was a B2B commerce platform called CloudCraze. I was a founder and head of strategy there. Uh, prior to that, I spent about 20 years in consulting and integrations, uh, uh, working really client-side uh, on B2C and B2B implementations, you name it, all over the world. So I've um, uh, been at commerce for quite a while. Absolutely. Since the early days. Well, take us back to how you got into commerce. Obviously, if anyone looks at your LinkedIn profile, they'll see you spend a lot of time in the consulting world. Can you take us back to maybe maybe how the University of Iowa did or did not position you well for a career <laughs> in e-commerce? I'm a Iowa State well, fan in tr- full transparency. Well, so I will always give a shout out to uh, a great public universities here in the United States, as well as the Big Ten. I think it gave me a really good, well-rounded set of experiences from which to build um, my career. And not unlike a lot of people, I came out of college and went right into, at the time it was big six consulting, you know, um, straddling business world and, and technology, trying to deliver business solutions. And you know, in 1999, in the 2000 era, you know, e-commerce was just another category of kind of IT project that was relevant, along with a lot of other things. Um, and, you know, at that time, I think very much consulting companies and even agencies in the early waves of e-commerce were approaching commerce much like they would any other kind of large system project, uh, apply some good kind of business strategists and business consultants with some technology people, and there you go. Um, I think what is obvious now and unfortunately was not as obvious way back then in the early years of e-commerce was that commerce is not just another kind of a IT project and that there are always sort of business process and technology things that have to come together to, to yield outcomes. But I, I think back then um, we did not anywhere nearly enough as much as we should have appreciated that e-commerce really meant standing up in large degree, a fully functioning kind of new type of business because commerce just involved so many non-technical and functional and operational aspects, especially in larger scale operations that 
Um, the breadth of complexity was not something that we always realized at the time, especially getting started with individual clients. But I think uh, over the years, people have come to realize that a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and as I was researching your, your background for this conversation, you know, your, your time at Acuity Group, you guys, you, you helped take them public, which is a no small feat. And, and you founded Cloud Craze. Uh, those are pretty impressive aspects of your resume. You want to take us through some of the learnings of, of taking a company public and, and, and basically founding one? Well, you know, I think it started really with a pretty simple idea that, and this was, you know, when, when we founded the Acuity Group Agency in uh, 2001, that was, you know, that was really a time where a lot of the market was kind of tired of e-commerce spending to some degree there was a dot-com boom and bust cycle prior to that and so a lot of people thought we were kind of nuts trying to start uh, a digital agency right after you know what some had thought was probably the best times in that industry and our view back then was that even though at that point a lot of companies felt like they had overspent on e-commerce and there were a lot of you know busts that just didn't pan out we still believe inherently that this digital economy was coming and that if you could combine really smart people with some of the best technologies on the planet, that there would be a place for it. And so we started like that company, not with the idea that, oh, for sure, commerce was a sure thing, but more like, hey, a lot of people are going to have to figure out how to do this. At that time, a lot of companies had spent maybe too much or built businesses that weren't really aligned with what their customers thought. And so it was a pretty simple idea of saying, boy, if we can really get the smartest people and combine that with pretty precision ways of, of going to market and solving specific problems with companies that we could be successful. And we grew that from, you know, 20 or so people into, you know, well over 1,200 consultants and took it public uh, 13 years later. Um, just a fantastic group of uh, people. Like, you know, our uh, consultants, I think, were awesome. Our customers were awesome. Uh, some of the best teams I've ever worked with. Just a really wild run and, you know, lots of great customers and, and kind of solving really hard problems all the way. You know, when you're a niche consultant, um, you're never anybody's kind of uh, easy, you know, nobody gets fired kind of choice. Every customer has to have a real specific POV to choose and work with you. And um, I think we did a pretty good job at, at working with a lot of companies that were doing some cool stuff and learned a lot, learned a lot about commerce platforms. For example, you know, a lot of the, one of the fallacies early on through a lot of the, you know, emergence of e-commerce was, you know, companies would just assume they needed to use the same platform for B2C commerce as they did for B2B commerce. And they assumed it purely in many cases from sort of a general IT optimization perspective. And, you know, what we realized at the long run, after the long run of consulting, where myself and my partners had largely lived that mantra of, you know, you need to have one platform that does B2C and B2B commerce and try to make sure 100% of it is the same. What we realized is that a lot of times business processes and what companies needed to transform underneath their actual sales processes, their commercial motions on B2B, for example, um, and even being more powerful direct to consumer, you know, having the same exact infrastructure internally was maybe not the most important thing. Maybe integration with CRM and alignment with field sales was more important um, if you're really trying to transform a B2B selling function in an organization. And so that was kind of the point after a lot of consulting and time ultimately, you know, sold the consulting agency to Accenture, which is a great company. 
yeah. really saw an opportunity in the market to have a, a purpose-built B2B commerce application that was built around the customer and how salespeople work with the customer and commerce works with the customer at the same time and not just, you know, here's your cool digital channel tool. So that's kind of where we went from um, consulting into product. And then, of course, we're really fortunate to have a great run of success with that product and, and, and Salesforce acquired it a few years later and now we're all here. So it's been really tremendous over the past five or six years. Yeah, that's tremendous. If I could slow you down for a second, uh, Acuity Group was a really kind of special case study in the context of the maturation of e-commerce. If you look at some of the talent that came out of the Acuity Group and is really now disseminated across the industry, it's amazing. Uh, the network of people that you worked with. I, it's probably not a week that goes by that I don't meet someone who has spent a portion of their career at that company. So amazing uh, exit for you guys getting sold to Accenture. Thank you, Jason. I mean, you guys are uh, not neophytes to commerce yourself. So that means something, you know, uh, from you. I, 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 you're very gracious. And yeah, we were fortunate to have I think it's just a tremendous team and really great clients and kind of at the epicenter of, of a lot of things for a while. Excellent. And then uh, I want to slow down as well on the cloud curse thing. Um, a friend, a, a mutual colleague of ours, John Cullinan called me a long time ago and said he was leaving whatever company he was at to go work for cloud craze. <clears throat> and I, I was like, who's cloud craze? And he described to me, it's this amazing B2B commerce company that's native on Salesforce. Uh, I don't know how important that was to uh, the selling story, but in my mind, it was pretty brilliant. Can you talk a little bit about the decision around building this B2B product native on Salesforce? Yeah, no, uh, great questions too. And to be honest with you, that, you know, the, the product had been incubating um, for a little bit with a consulting company uh, that had been based in Chicago with some of the sort of simple concepts. And it was actually back when I was still in my consulting days that I first learned of cloud craze, which was sort of this, you know, coming on the scene, newer thing. And to be honest with you, I really didn't believe it. I mean, I was coming from a long career of mostly traditional enterprise e-commerce stacks, Oracle SAP, Ibris, you name it, and didn't really buy some of the initial claims uh, with regard to how fast it could get live and how it could work and function. And it was really seeing the proof points. And, if, and, and frankly, there was a time when I got beat by, you know, I had my big bad team from my big bad consulting company and the Gartner top quadrant e-commerce platform. And we thought for sure we were gonna win. And, and, and this upstart beat us. And I was really surprised and didn't believe it. But I scratched at it and the more I got to learn about it, the more I understood that it was just different. Like it was a different way of doing things. Like having commerce built around the CRM data structure and with SaaS, just different. And, and it did yield faster and different kinds of outcomes. And it was after getting a little bit closer to it that then I think myself and my colleagues realized that there was really something. And we decided to buy it um, and, and really put a lot more juice behind the R&D and of course get closer to Salesforce and, and, and invest in marketing and telling that story. And you know, fortunately all that came together pretty well. Yep. It was shortly thereafter, maybe a couple of years that I actually kind of first started losing to cloud craze. And it was actually when Salesforce owned it. Um, there were two very large prospects who were trying to make the decision. They, they really needed some of the capabilities and the data model, as you described, aligned to the CRM of the cloud craze product. 
but they also really wanted Digital River's business model. And it was such a weird competition for us to be in because your business couldn't offer what we could and your business, and we couldn't offer what yours could. And ultimately in those two examples, you guys both won and we both lost. And that was the, that's actually how we met. I don't know if you remember it, maybe three years ago or so, uh, I reached out and said, we should partner. Yep, I remember. Yep. Yeah, and I, I, you know, and I, I think it's a tribute to you and, 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 you know, Digital River as a company, how well that worked, because like you say, ostensibly we were nothing but competitors back then. And, you know, well, yeah, we had just been bought by Salesforce. The reality is, long time in market. And I think, you know, you recognized um, that there might be a little bit of a way to do something different. And we certainly saw the need for some of the capabilities that Digital River has within Salesforce customers. So, you know, it's always delicate as you go from being competitor to partner. But I think that everybody on your team was really open and honest about the strategic direction of Digital River and some of the great capabilities around payments and, and you know, some of the other things that you have in your bag. And, and we were too, and I'm thrilled uh, because that by coming together and forming a joint offering, we've done something that the customers are really getting value out of. Yep. That's totally right. In fact, I was on calls this week, uh, last week, hello, it's Monday, uh, where our teams are coordinating, sharing RFPs, talking through how we can respond better together. Uh, you know, using examples like Avid, who's an industry, you know, a giant in their field, who's a joint customer, or uh, a relative newcomer in the UK called Egress Software, James Sudworth uh, has been on our podcast, and other customers really take advantage of this better together story. So it is working. Yeah. So credit to you and your team for embracing the partnership as well. Yeah, I think that B2B is at such an interesting crossroads in general as it relates to e-commerce in, in the industry. And, you know, the, the one very true thing is that there's no single type of B2B commerce company. There's just all kinds of different sort of operating models that you see under the covers in, in B2B. But, you know, Avid and Egress represent, you know, some really interesting examples of high-tech companies that have really amazing brands and products and customer bases that sell to businesses. So by that nature, have people that conduct selling, have loads of marketing investments that, that support um, uh, lead generation and the like. Um, but at the same time, they need to be global. They want to be in more places than they have physical operations. They have lots of different places to accept payments at the same. So they kind of need really aligned B2B operational businesses where salespeople and customers collaborate with the digital platform. But they needed a lot of flexibility in terms of payments and merchant seller of records sort of all bundled. And so it, it's been pretty awesome to be able to bring all of that together. And there's more on the horizon than that, I can promise. Um, shifting gears a little bit, your, your next stop, obviously, when, when you got to Salesforce, you were the B2B guy. Uh, you've, you've kicked butt, and, and obviously, the organization is continuing to invest in you. Now, you, own, you have a role with all things commerce. Can you talk a little bit about more about that role? Well, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, so, you can get fairly grizzled in doing similar stuff for a longer period of time. And I will tell you that <clears throat> I just never had more fun in my life professionally than I'm having now. Um, you know, we have just so much great 
kind of, first of all, technology and platform around commerce here at Salesforce that I feel like it's a kid in the candy store after 20 years. Uh, we've got great customers that are um, really supportive of kind of what we're trying to do. And so to have the opportunity now to support B2C commerce and B2B commerce really with a focus on kind of what are some uh, new industries that, that we're uh, jumping into, new ways to work across our clouds at, at Salesforce, say for industries such as telecommunications and the like, where we can combine with capabilities in the back end of Salesforce. There's just so much going on. Um, and it, it, it's just really great customers, really great people. Um, obviously at a time in history where I think commerce is making a big impact on people's lives and um, uh, mostly for the better now and, and so that all those combinations of things i think it's just really fun and, and gratifying to be at, at a great company with great partners and and uh, some really good technologies to play with well i'm going to pull on that string a little bit more you know salesforce has the the breadth of the of the market you cover virtually all industries and i happen to know that you're a guy who loves to help the sales team by by telling the right story by sharing the right trends are there things that you've heard recently that stick out as interesting in the context of operating your business during COVID? Are there things either on a B2C or a B2B use case that, that you found incredibly interesting? Um, you know, I think it's the collection of data points that have come together. So for example, I, I just, I, I had a discussion like this with uh, one of our customers in the grocery industry in New Zealand last week. And so New Zealand now at um, this point in early August has, has um, come through a full shutdown and uh, uh, a series of pivots within the shutdown where there were lots of different things and then now back to a full reopening. And first and foremost, one of the really interesting things that, that I learned it, you know, through that conversation was that by and large, not perfect, everything's not 100%, but like from a commercial business perspective, Store traffic came back. Obviously, in their case, B2B long tail kind of customers, restaurants, retail establishments came back in a really meaningful way such that, you know, what they've gotten back to is an economy where, you know, it's digitally amped for sure. Like they've had much bigger uh, adoption of digital, certainly in, in this particular customer, their grocery business. Um, but it's back now with stores plus more digital engagement before. So that kind of gives me some level of encouragement about the future that we have ahead of all of us in that, um, you know, I think we're going to come out of this with, you know, certainly a much greater acceleration of digital, but at the same time, we're all still going to be people and people live in an environment that includes stores and whether you're a consumer or a B2B buyer, um, you're going to want to engage and work with people who, um, kind of understand you regardless of how you're presenting. So whether you're showing up at a store or you're talking to your sales rep, I think that these are the times where companies really are understanding in a very visceral way, if you don't have connected systems, you're not gonna make it. Cause you can tell, like we can tell the companies and clients on our platform that had some of their act together and some of the right tooling and people were able to turn on curbside pickup right away as the pandemic started hitting. And now those are the kinds of things that are make or breaking you as a company and a business. So the ability to be agile 
increasingly equals the ability to be connected because otherwise you're not going to be able to turn and have your channels operating well together if you open up new markets or not. So I think that the biggest thing, the headline for me is that I think a lot of companies are realizing um, in a very visceral way, what some of these buzzwords like connected mean, how they translate into kind of outcomes or not. Um, I think that we are getting to a place where going back to um, less online is certainly not going to happen. Um, and then, you know, there's just stories of abundant all the way in between. I'm, I, I'm really grateful, you know, at Salesforce, one of the things that I get to hear a lot about are cases where we help with um, companies that are providing PPE. So we just leaned in with a, 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 a customer, a not-for-profit company called Response for Life. And we're able to, in a matter of just a handful of weeks, get them up and live with the B2B commerce experience that um, uh, helps them uh, take all of this great sourced PPE that they've been able to find and distribute that out to uh, hospitals and healthcare organizations that are in need using B2B commerce. And, you know, that was something that didn't cost them much. We were able to provide the software and lean in with advice and, and it's making a really, really big impact. And we're seeing examples like that all the time. I mean, uh, our grocery clients on the direct-to-consumer side are experiencing holiday plus demand every single day. Um, and so, you know, that's just how important commerce has become to businesses in some cases if you needed to pivot. And in many cases, families who are looking to get groceries or, you know, find something for their house to be able to entertain their kids or whatever. Commerce has just become that much more important. I, I, you hit on something that I think is important. I, there aren't many companies as socially aware as Salesforce. And your CEO, Mark Benioff, is someone that I follow quite a bit. And uh, your work.com solution really helps a lot of companies kind of work through some of the challenges of COVID. Uh, I will say you are lucky, blessed, whatever they want to use the word, to work for such a great kind of progressive company. Um, one of the questions I would have for you, and, and, and I get it almost every day or, or so from my sales team, is when can we get back on airplanes? Uh, how, are, how is Salesforce thinking about that, being you know, a world-class sales organization? Are you guys getting your people back on airplanes, or are you waiting until uh, it's more safe? Well, I think we're leading um, with medical experts and with the best advice and guidance that we can possibly get. And, you know, everything I see is that our leadership team is really putting the safety of the individual first, um, kind of from a planning perspective. I think that broadly speaking, you know, Salesforce people enjoy our offices. We're proud of the physical locations and ability to get there and collaborate and work well with customers and partners. But, um, as someone who works here, I, I can tell you that it does not, it certainly doesn't feel like there's a uh, marching, driving timetable to do anything unnatural anytime soon. And, and quite frankly, I think, Jason, you know, I, like you, spent probably the most of my time traveling in previous years. And, and the better part of the previous 10 years, more days than not, I was on a plane. And I don't think it's just about Salesforce. I'm grateful that I work at a place that not only is, I think, taking responsibility and doing things right for our employees, but helping to lead, you know, how other companies can reopen with work.com. But notwithstanding all that, I don't think the world is going back to flying with the frequency that we did before. Yeah. Now that could change. I don't, 
own a lot of stocks and airlines, but I, I do think that looking back in, you know, my life, were all those trips totally necessary? For sure not. Have we been, had collectively, has the universe been probably more productive uh, uh, remotely than we thought we could be? For sure. So I, I don't, you know, it feels like we'll be back in our offices and our locations when the time is right, depending on where that is in the world. Uh, but generally, I think that a lot of people are learning how to do a lot more um, in this new mode. So I'm excited, actually, what the world will bring in terms of more of a kind of a hybrid way of working. I don't think it's going back to exactly what it was. I'm not sure if it's going to stay like this. I don't necessarily like to stay on my couch all the time. Um, but I think that somewhere in the middle is pretty cool. And so I'm excited about that. Uh, and you guys have this thing called your shopping index, which you publish on a quarterly basis. Um, Andy, I'd love to maybe we can put the link to it in our notes section for this podcast because I want to draw some attention to it. Uh, but one of the things it talks a lot about for Q2 is how intentional shoppers are, um, especially going on with what's going on with COVID. Can you speak to some of the things that you guys are seeing and, and maybe share some of what's in that report? Yeah, sure. And yeah, it is. It's that's one of the really cool things that, that's fun being here is that we do get so much kind of top line data from all over the world. And so at any given time, we can get kind of a real world perspective on what's happening and how it might be different across markets. And so what you're referring to in, in our most recent um, uh, uh, digital shopper index where we talked about intentionality is that we're just getting um, pretty dramatic increases in conversion rates um, this year. So not only are we seeing, as most people have probably referenced, um, big spikes in traffic as well as purchases overall, our um, shopping cart complete rates are uh, 3%, which is up 35% since last year. And so that is a pretty powerful statement. So not only do we know people are going online more, but we're, we're you know, going there for a specific thing and closing those purchases out. It's less of a hobby and more of a requirement. And so we're seeing that interestingly, even in markets that have now opened up. So I mentioned earlier um, about some of our customers in New Zealand. Well, part of the fact that we've got this data is we can see in markets that have now opened up is the digital activity slowing down um, after they open up. And it's it, it, a little bit, we're seeing some dips, but it's still staying at a, a pretty heightened, elevated level. This is part of why we don't think that any of this is going away anytime soon. Yep. And what's great about Salesforce is you guys have such broad coverage from, you know, health and beauty, toys and learning, apparel, consumer electronics, you name it. And you guys take a lot of that data and you make it available. So it's uh, for our listeners, it's called the shopping index uh, and it's available on the Salesforce blog, which we'll share. So thank you for that. So Andy, a, a tradition on this podcast is uh, we ask you, obviously you've been in the industry a long time. You've worked at many different companies with many different views of the market. Um, but who, influ who influences you? Where do you stay current? Are there analysts you listen to, customers? Do you follow people? I think those sorts of things. Yeah, great question. And no shortage of people to pay attention to. Um, you know, in e-commerce. I think there's some great sources of, of data and information out there. Um, I really do listen to and pay attention to Gartner and Forrester quite a bit. Um, you know, I think that they're um, just fielding so many questions and inquiries. And, and so I think their data points tend to be 
uh, pretty useful and valuable, and I rely on their printed material as well as individual consultations uh, quite a bit. I also watch what great brands are doing, you know, from a general e-commerce perspective. So Adidas, who's fortunate to be, you know, we're fortunate to have as a customer of, of Salesforce, it just does some amazing things all the time. And so it's really interesting to watch and see what they're doing from a consumer scale perspective that informs and tends to be um, kind of headlines in terms of trends and things that you're seeing uh, elsewhere. I think, you know, you have to pay attention to um, all of the ongoing uh, discussions around privacy and uh, uh, sharing of information, especially from an advertising perspective, just because, you know, there's a lot going on that I think people in commerce have to think about with regard to choices they make for uh, sharing of information, um, partners they choose, et cetera. So I pay attention to a lot um, in that realm of privacy, security, compliance. Um, and then, of course, you know, um, Amazon all the time. And, and the Amazons and the ilk. So whether it's Amazon or Alibaba, it, those also are the players that tend to have just a really outsized influence on, on, in what we're going to start seeing in the future. Well, so another question that we ask everyone is, you're a bit of a tastemaker. You've worked at many agencies. Uh, you've been a consultant. You've been on the platform side, B2B, B2C. Who does it right? And try not to pick a client. Try to pick someone uh, that's a little bit more maybe obscure. Give us an example yeah. of someone who does it right. So great examples of people are doing um, commerce well. Well, I tell you, um, um, to me and, and in my personal life, as well as certainly a trend that I see from customers and professionals is that, you know, anything that takes away friction uh, from my life or uh, from what I was intending to do is something that appeals to me very greatly. So I, you know, in the past year or so, this is primarily a pre-COVID uh, answer because I've not been able to do this uh, since COVID, but I love that my local barbershop has an e-commerce reservation system that takes me nothing but a, a, a click to make a reservation the day of for that afternoon. I don't have to plan ahead. I don't have to do anything. And it's just literally a click and it's done. That's fantastic. And it's got I me mean, much better at regularity uh, uh, for haircuts prior to COVID because it's just so easy. and wouldn't even think about using anything else. And so I think that's also part of the trend, sort of small connected experiences that nobody has to think about, that you're not browsing, that just happens to meet you where you are. And it, it takes next to nothing to be able to execute. It's just wonderful, super easy, connected to Facebook. Why not do it? It's I think- such, such a perfect example because of- you, you know, and that actually made an impact on my life, you know, versus calling and talking to people. It's just, you know, it's a dumb, simple thing, but it really was cool. Um, and that's just a simple, small commerce experience that's on my phone. So, I, I, and I think there are lessons for that actually in much more complicated corporate environments too. I couldn't agree more. I, I think the, uh, I think the fact that you called that e-commerce is, is perfect because it totally is. It enables e-commerce to happen. And most people would think of that as uh, some little reservation system where the reality of it is, if it didn't have that, you might take your business somewhere who did. So it is absolutely e-commerce and it's absolutely germane to how small businesses can fight back and, and deliver a great experience. So I love that example. Yeah. And then I tend to be, you know, like a lot, I mean, I tend to get really impressed with super simple things done well. 
you know, I have a, a, a we have a, a customer. So this is a customer example in the grocery business for B2B that, um, you know, is doing great business. And one of the things that they did that, you know, I've not seen a lot of other people do um, that had just tons of great returns was allowing their B2B customers in, in food service to create simple, easy little wish lists, almost like a consumer piece of functionality. And without a whole lot of planning or forethought into how it would happen and, you know, did that about the same time they did a whole bunch of other promotional kinds of campaigns. And what they found is that their customers took to that simple wish list functionality so much, like really crazy adoption. They were able to, you know, just give the customers this really simple tool. So if you're in a small corner store, you can go say, here's my IF5 list or whatever. And I just walk down the aisle and, and add to it. So simple that at first they were concerned because they started seeing big drop-offs in site engagement because um, people weren't spending that much time, as much time on the site as they used to. But they became quickly comfortable when they saw they were selling a lot more. So here's a perfect example of kind of this self-service centric nature, especially of B2B commerce in that they implemented a feature that, you know, yielded less time on site, which would make most B2C marketers freak out, but it dramatically rose the revenue in part because it gave people self-serve answers quickly and painlessly. So they were just easier to do business with. And, you know, there were a lot of really complicated things that they could have implemented um, as promotional capabilities. Instead, this simple one really cut through. It's such a germane example for the world that we're living in, how your traditional KPIs may have to shift. I mean, you think about a traditional retailer, they were trying to drive traffic. You wanted as many people in that store as you possibly could, and then you'd focus on converting them and basket size and other things. But in today's world, where you have to limit the number of people who are in your store, uh, your focus and your KPIs change. I think it's exactly like your example, uh, where an innovation simply changes the business dynamics and you, and you need to embrace that. And the service end, end, end of the experience is just so important. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I, and I remember, I mean, you know, it, it didn't always used to be this case. So being in commerce for 20 years means that I remember when, the storefront technologies were not good and getting a storefront was like a miracle. It used to be hard. Getting the actual website part nowadays is pretty straightforward. There's a lot of technology that does an e-commerce website, a lot. Doing it in a connected way so that service works as you expect that you could grow and change because e-commerce businesses are nothing if not constantly in states of change. That connectivity is really, I think, just super important. And especially the ability to get service in line that as you're rolling out new capabilities, whether it's a consumer or whatever, if it's curbside or whatever, you've got to really be able to handle that whole end to end. And, you know, I think that's coming into focus pretty clearly for a lot of people now. Yeah. You know, you said something on the last podcast and we're getting close on time, so I'll try and be brief. You talked about how real innovation, you know, there's a, there's a, ton of buzzwords that everybody uses around being more efficient or, or, you know, whatever the buzzword of the day is. Uh, and I, and it really registered with me because what you said is your products help shave days, weeks, months off of cycles. And you remember that conversation, Andy, at all? Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. 
And the reason I think it's important is because, you know, what you're doing with Salesforce with the Commerce Cloud products is you're effectively taking an innovation platform and you're allowing them to businesses to adapt to the market needs of things like COVID or international growth or tax law changes, whatever those things might be. But you do it in a way that uh, shaves time off of them trying to execute. You guys become the, the agility enabler to add more buzzwords to it. Is that aligned to kind of the, the strategy you're trying to execute on Salesforce? A hundred percent. And and I think that these, and, and, and you know, our current times, I think illustrate the need for having that kind of agility uh, at large extremely well. Companies need to be able to do things like turn on new fulfillment options quickly. Companies need to be able to add products from other parties to sell quickly. They need to be able to participate in marketplaces more and better than before. So there's just so much going on and it's constantly changing and there's a need to be able to, you know, grow with customers to capture some of the natural growth, et cetera. That I, I change is the name of the game in e-commerce, certainly now more than ever before. And having tools that are built for the ability to change, yes, is important, but also that are kind of built with that idea in mind. So connected. So you can have service experiences that work well with commerce, et cetera. It's just really important. And, um, you know, that means, especially times like now, it's generally more important to go fast than be perfect um, because there's just a lot going on. Andy, if people want to get in touch with you and learn more about your career, about Salesforce, Commerce Cloud, uh, or about University of Iowa or any of those things, how, how could they get a hold of you? Best way to catch me is just at apebler, A-P-E-E-B-L-E-R at salesforce.com. Wonderful. And I follow you on Twitter. You're active once every four or five years you post. Or you can wait for that next one in about five years. It's going to be a really good tweet. I'm working on it today. Yeah. Andy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you, Jason. Thanks you for having me. You are a true expert in the field of e-commerce and we were uh, thrilled and honored to have you on the, on the podcast today. So thanks again. You've been listening to the Commerce Connect podcast brought to you by Digital River and edited at Matriarch Digital Media in Minneapolis, Minnesota. To learn more, head to digitalriver.com.